I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening event celebrating the life and work of Bridget Brophy, hosted by the London Review of Books with the support of Faber. My name is Badisha. I'm a brought-up broadcaster and journalist, and it gives me huge pleasure to welcome my panellists, the writer and academic Terry Castle and the writer and editor Ellie Williams. In discussing Bridget Brophy's life and work, we'll be speaking amongst ourselves for about 40 minutes or so in a discussion led by me. And after that, I invite all the people watching to send in their questions using the Q&A function or the chat function or whatever you have. We will say goodbye after an hour or so, but I'm really looking forward to those last 20 minutes where we can hear your questions and comments. So keep your thinking caps on and uh, send them in as they come to you. Without further ado, Terry and Ellie, welcome. Uh, Ellie, if I start with you, who is Bridget Brophy to you and how did you first discover her? I came very late, embarrassingly late, to um, discovering having Bridget Brophy brought across my desk and her body of work. Um, I first read her book, The Snowball. That was my first introduction to her work. Um, And since then, this elusive polemicist, uh, full of humour, activism, energy, wryness. Um, One cannot be anything other than beguiled by the stylishness with which he writes. As I mentioned, this this, um, contentious, often confident voice, and it meant that I then was seeking out her her non-fiction as much as her fiction. But to me, she now feels like one of the most important uh, British writers of the 20th century. And I look forward to her being one of the most read in the 21st. Uh, Terry Castle, if I can throw that over to you, who is Bridget Brophy to you, the woman and the writer? And how (laughs) how did you first discover her? Well, you know, I've been trying to remember this ever since this has been was set up. Um, And I can't because it seems like it was two million years ago. It was probably when I was in college in the 1970s. And she was, of course, writing away at that time. I can't remember what it was, the first thing that I saw. Um, It might have been uh, 50 works of English literature we could do without. Um, 
but then um, I began encountering her essays, um, the collections uh, Don't Never Forget, and uh, what's what's the other one sitting here? Um, and I became very fascinated by, well, just to be blunt about it, her sort of coquettishly revealed sexuality when she would write about uh, her marriage, but then she would have these little lesbian jokes and things all over the place. And so she became a sort of consuming private figure for me, someone I was desperate to know more about. Um, I was living in uh, Washington State when I was in college, and it was the early 70s, and it was I was nowhere, and I it was a fantasy to enter this the life that came through in all of her books, um, and especially in her personal writings. Um, I think one of the moment at which I thought, oh yes, she's definitely um, got what to call it, a, a lesbian element to her life, was when I started reading her tennis essays about Martina Navratilova. <laughs> and, and she's got this one called In Praise of Martina Navratilova. I thought, what on, oh my God, I can't believe she's <laughs> talking about her piratical uh, style up to the net and uh, everything else. So, um, she's someone, she became a huge literary crush for me. And I, I feel so sad, obviously. She didn't live longer. Uh, and also that I never had the chance to meet her or hear her. Um, cause wow. she just sounds like a kick. I'm sure she was a kick and we'll get into that a little bit later. But Ellie, if I, I'd love to hear from you a little bit more. Has Bridget Brophy always been esteemed but underread. Why do you think her work has fallen out of mention to the point where this event might be really reintroducing her to, to audience members who haven't been familiar with her work? I think that, yeah, it was so important to me to admit that I was very late in, in knowing the name Bridget Brophy and in reading her work. Um, because I think I'm not alone in not recognizing her name in this uh, kind of canon or anti-canon of names uh, based on the time when she was writing. You know, I've I've heard of Iris Murdoch. Uh, I've heard of Muriel Spark. Why is Bridget <laughs> not part of that? Why is that not part of, of kind of my trinity um, that's, that's coming to mind? Um, and I think in a way, it's really important that um, I was reading, I think it is the first uh, book that is dedicated to her work and thinking critically about her that came out um, in the last couple of years, Bridget Brophy, avant-garde writer, critic, activist. Uh, it's edited by Richard Canning and Jerry Kimber. Um, and it is this very generous, thoughtful, rigorous account of um, Brophy as a writer, as an activist, um, as a critical voice herself. And the the names that come up where she is in direct dialogue with um, 
Angela Carter, uh, that she is producing artworks with Maureen Duffy, um, and just this network of names uh, and constellations of work uh, where she's right at the forefront of that. Um, she is this great agitator of, of style and, and provocation of, of critical nuance and complexity, uh, completely original at the same time. Um, and I think that she is, uh, as, as you say, Terry, we're all suddenly flummoxed by crushes for her. <laughs> this, this need to know more, this, this need to um, pour over the work that is extant. And it's so brilliant to see that, that um, not only Faber is reassuring her work uh, and, and courting, energising a new readership, um, but also that her novels are, are appearing um, thanks to smaller presses, uh, Silicon Press, um, just one of the number, m making sure that we are able to, to access her work um, and, and not be just hoping for, for happenstance and uh, a shared glance in a secondhand bookstore. Um, it's, it's great to see and it's wonderful that I can benefit from, from her being championed by new voices. Um, um, I, I don't want voices. to I, I don't want us to symbolically objectify, sexualize and then maul Bridget Bro Bridget Brophy. So I, I want <laughs> us enough. to stop these um, sexualized things <laughs> right now. But I did want to throw across the same sentiment and the same question to to Terry Castle, which really is why is Bridget Brophy's work ripe for revival right now? The same way that Iris Murdoch, although she had a much more well-known career, has come full yeah. circle and is discovering lots of wonderful new young emergent readers. Why is Bridget Brophy right for the 21st century revival that we're, we're now participating in giving her? Well, I would, uh, I guess I would say, first of all, her sexuality as elusive perhaps as it was, is a huge part of it. Uh, because when she began writing, people did not write about their personal lives in this way. Um, and so that with the sort of uh, attention now that is um, uh, sort of omnipresent to sec about sexual identity, um, that aspect of her work is inescapable and fascinating. I think to her activism, especially with regard to animals and vegetarianism and veganism and all those things, uh, make her immediately relevant in some way to a lot of people. I guess I'm... Uh, it's in part because I remember very well a previous uh, revival of Bridget Brophy, which took place in the early 1980s. And that was when I first read a number of her novels, including The Snowball. And the books were reissued in England and even in the United States. And she's one of those writers. Unfortunately, there's a kind of inertia that pulls her back into um, uh, a state of being unknown to people. And I'm not quite sure what, why that happens, but I worry a little bit that it will happen again. Um, 
compared to Iris Murdoch's novels, which I like very much, um, her novels are very difficult. I mean, Murdoch's are like shabby little shockers compared to um, the snowball or something. They don't have the same kind of pleasure to them at all. It's a different thing, uh, just sort of eminently readable. And even if you don't get all the philosophical stuff about Plato and so on, um, you can enjoy them just because the stories are so crazy. Um, but um, I kind of think with Brophy, I think she is a very difficult writer in a lot of ways. And I was thinking that as I was rereading The Snowball the week for the first time in almost, God, 40 years, I was thinking, oh, this is really hard. I, I Like, what is this about? Like, I, <laughs> I got back into it, but I thought um, a friend of mine who I don't know if she's watching uh, today or not, but she said, well, what's the novel I should read of Brophy's? And I kind of drew a blank because the allusiveness in all of the works um, is so uh, rich and, uh, again, ubiquitous that I think uh, not as many readers are equipped to understand what she's doing. Uh, so I'm not quite as sanguine, perhaps, as you are, Ellie, about if this is going to work or not. I think she's always going to be caviar to the general and um now more than ever i guess um uh, we're meeting at a time when faber have indeed reissued the novel that we've been talking about for the last few minutes it's brophy's the snowball and the great thing about broadcasting for home from home is it's on my shelf and i'm gonna guess it right now <laughs> very smooth there we go <laughs> had it with me but didn't oh there you go it's probably going to be a mirror writing, but it's a very beautiful cover and it's been reissued by Faber. We, uh, full disclosure, we have all blurbed it. Uh, so our names are on this everywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> we weren't paid for it. We did it out of love. Um, it's a. Uh, it's a scintillating and sparkling novel full of dark undercurrents and cross-cutting relationships and regrets, which takes part uh, in place, uh, which takes place in part at a sort of very glittering ball of the, the great and the good and the slightly jaded and the damned. Uh, what is it about the snowball that makes it so captivating for now, Ellie? I think precisely because, as you say, it has that... Uh, it has a sheen to it um, and it has a, uh, a clarity of, of uh, place and time. So it's, it's a New Year's Eve ball. Um, it's a masked ball. So already uh, there are the tensions there of who will remove the mask, who will not let the mask slip. Um, and there are very witty, pretty, clever people doing witty, pretty, clever things. Um, usually that kind of book, I feel, as at most parties, I feel out of place. <laughs> I want to hover and, and maybe look at what's going on rather than be embroiled in it. Um, but what Brophy manages to do is to completely not only skewer 
but dissect and revel at the same time in what company means. Does it mean um, scribbling in your diary and annotating in horror what you're seeing in front of you? Does it mean uh, conflagration? Does it mean sexuality? Does it mean sensuality? Does it mean peppermints being dolloped down upon you and conversation <laughs> being <laughs> conversation being a kind of infection. Um, and the way that she's able to get all of this across um, in a way like the the nominal snowball, she shakes it, we watch it and we marvel at it. Um, it's very funny, it's very sly. Um, it's very sensorial, it's erotic and charged with campness. It's, it manages to do all of those things. Um, and it's a festive treat <laughs> for January. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ellie, I had been about to have asked you to do a reading, but actually because Terry's reading is from the snowball, I want to bring Terry in here oh. now. Now, just before we go into it, I wondered right. if you could say a little bit about the tone of the snowball, because when I was asked to blurb it, I, I wrote back privately saying, this is so interesting. It was written in the mid 20th century, you know, swing 60s, swing 70s. That's all happening. But actually, I read it as a novel of the 1920s or 30s. It has a sort of mid-war yeah. Yes, and I wondered if uh, if if I'm misguided in in feeling that. Um, Ellie, Terry, it's one for you actually. And oh, that was for me. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, every now and then she drops in hints that um, it's um, set in the sixties. Uh, for instance, the character Ruth, the young girl, um, is dancing the twist. And uh, for me, it's not a problem because I remember, <laughs> I remember that time. Uh, I lived through it. Uh, I wasn't very old, but I did live through it. Uh, and so uh, I could all I can also see it's a novel about the 18th century in a very deep sense, which has always been my scholarly specialty. And in fact, I wrote a book on masquerades when I was much younger. Um, but uh, there are so many 18th century references and not just to uh, Mozart by any means um, that. I'm kind of used to reading with a lot of different literary periods activated at the same time. And I think she gets a lot of it from Wolf, uh, who I was blown away this time reading The Snowball. I'd never thought of her even really admiring Wolf that much. But this novel is is. Oh, Wolfian in so many ways, uh, this party scene and so on. Um, so Wolf is present. So, yes, the 20s are present, but then the 1890s are also present in Wolfian flashbacks and uh, so on and so forth. So for me, this is the way I read things um, with a kind of constant time travel going on. Um, I think that we would love to hear the extract that you've chosen to give a sense of the flavour of Brophy. If you if you 
feel ready, willing, and able, Terry? I think I'm, that I'm ready and willing and not able, but nonetheless, I'll do it. Um, uh, it's actually not in some ways typical. Uh, for me, it's the point where on rereading the novel, uh, it came alive again. Um, everyone is at this uh, party. Uh, everyone is engaged in this kind of arch, facetious conversation with one another and flirting and so on. But there's an, a, an outsider character who is this young uh, teenage girl named Ruth, who's the child of very wealthy parents. And they have brought her to the party, even though she's somewhat, uh, you know, she's only, what, 15 or 16, I think. Uh, and she's writing her diary simultaneously uh, as um, the party goes on. She's, she's sitting by herself and kind of surreptitiously writing this adolescent diary, which to me is so hilarious, uh, the snippets we get from it as it goes along. And um, this is also a, a point through which... Uh, Brophy is alluding in a lot of ways to the literary history of lesbianism. Uh, and she does it through Ruth and Ruth's little reflections and reveries on various women, in particular Anna, the main uh, female character um, who she seems to have been in love with. She says at one point, Anna is the most attractive woman I've ever met. I detest I'm sure her. <laughs> That's wonderful. So anyway, um, yeah. Um, can people see it, see the screenshot? Because it needs the visual. There we go. There we go. Okay. All yeah. right. Here she is. Um, uh, when I was a schoolgirl, if I met an attractive woman, I used to fall in love with her. Now, one of the things I love about this passage is Brophy uh, imitating an adolescent style in which a kind of contraction uh, and uh, shortening of words is all the way through. And, and it is, to me, just so funny. Um, Brophy is a, is a nut about punctuation. And obviously, vocabulary, semantics, and everything else. And uh, so, uh, I, you'll humor me if I uh, uh, read this exactly the way it's written. Suppose this was way of not being depressed at her being more attractive than me. Query. This diary too introspective, morbid as Ed would say, beastly egotistical anyway, used to think must be lesbian, looked up Sappho and Lesbos in Encycla, liked idea of geek island, sun, blue sky, playing ball on sands beside blue sea, like one of those classical Picassos, Miss L, so keen on but do not really care for pink monumental women. A bit like M, that's mummy, who is at the party too. 
but cannot imagine M playing ball with nothing on. Used to wonder if when I was grown up, D or daddy would buy Lesbos for me. He's very rich. But all that ages ago, realize now it was a naive idea, means Sappho, etc. Ages ago, mod civils, much more complicated, etc. Expect you can't buy Gick Island, at least not big one anymore, even if D could and would. Expect he could. But way I have written it is ambiguous. Could mean it's ages ago that I used to think it would be nice. And actually, this is true, too. Cannot feel like that anymore. No doubt more healthy and normal, but makes V vulnerable to, and this is my favorite one, depression. <laughs> Certainly cannot imagine loving Anna Kay. But people must have done, men, I mean. She looks as if she's had lots of lovers. Suppose I think her attractive because she is not monumental type. This may mean D, daddy, does not find her attractive, as he evidently likes monumental type, e.g. mummy. Anna Kay, more on scraggy side like me, Actually, she is not quite tall enough. Think I am about ideal height for a woman. Not conceit have many disadvantages. Of course, people of my generation usually are taller than people of Anna Kay's. Better feeling when babies. Uh, uh, just one quick footnote. All through her diary entries, um, Brophy is also thinking about Freud and Freud's case histories and the Anna K. We've got Anna O. Uh, every time Ruth is is writing about Anna K. But we also have Frau K. from the Dora case history. And I I know that Brophy's got some um, substructure going on here that has to do with adolescent girls and that's, the discovery of sexuality. That's fantastic. Thank you so very much, Terry. Uh, we now have not got screen a screen share on, so I can see your lovely faces again. Uh, Ellie, I'm going to devote a great big chunk of time to you now because two panelists each gets 50% of the time. That's how it goes. Uh, <laughs> We'll put your reading a little bit further down so that people have had time to collect their thoughts, perhaps when they're getting ready to send in their, their questions. My question for you, Ellie, is really, are there any themes and considerations that run throughout Bridget Brophy's work, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, activism, criticism? Certainly. Um, I think maybe most personally um, is in reaction to, to that reading that, that Terry just did from the snowball, um, this idea of Brophy's encyclopedic awareness um, of psychology, of um, the differences between generations and the way in which generations might butt up against one another, but ultimately share a dynamic 
and have to situate themselves in a shared dynamic and how that can be a difficulty, but also can be um, something rather poignant <laughs> and wonderful. Um, I think that in terms of fiction, um, and my reading in part is, is to do with this, um, I think it really is important to situate her as an activist that enabled the um, PLR, the public lending right in the UK, to exist. This idea of her advocating for um, the rights of an author to be remunerated for their work. Um, maybe I've made that sound like a, a bit of a, a cynical or grubby pursuit, but someone who was very aware of the labour that goes into um, creating work uh, and that goes into ensuring that there is a readership um, that can help authors. Um, I think that that shows a generosity of spirit um, in terms of, of who she was as a person. Um, and in terms of the motifs and themes of her writing, to be honest, they're so um, multiform and various uh, that it would be difficult to think of uh, something where I wouldn't want to hear her voice or her critique on it at the moment. Um, she would be having a, a feast, I think, um, with the current circumstances um, in terms of, of how she would address it and, and would be able to turn her eye to it, even if it would be um, in recoiling in horror at certain uh, rigidities and structures um, and circumstances. Well, let's um, get on I, to that. I, yeah. I was After just you, going to, to pick up on what you just said, which is Brophy was also passionately committed to numerous political causes. What were these and what form did her did her activism take? Um, well, as I say, with Maureen Duffy, um, she advocated and uh, enabled the, the PLR. Um, she was also a member of the National Secular Society. Um, she was a uh, fervent and important um, writer, critic and um, activist in terms of vivisection and in terms of, of animal rights. Um, as, as Terry mentioned, uh, really one of the earliest modern critical voices um, that was a proponent of vegetarianism and of thinking in terms of morality and ethics. Uh, what part do we play um, in terms of harm and um, uh, our relationship with, with animals and cruelty? Um, before Peter Singer, who I think is the name most associated with uh, the kind of ethical treatment of, of animals being um, understood in that way. Uh, and I think that that side of her um, is intrinsic to her work, which seems to me, in my ignorance, at odds often with what might be seen as glibness, flippancy, um, that tonally is in her fiction, um, that this is someone who cared and was rigorous with their philosophy and with their politics. Um, and that flippancy and glibness was part um, of how that was uh, mediated and expressed rather than um, she saw that as two different spheres that, or two different sides of a, a Venn diagram that, that couldn't cross or coalesce. Um, I think formidable in uh, both her fiction and in her, her critical work as much as in her, her activism. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Leading on from that, I think that we'd love to hear from the selection that you've chosen to read out. And after that, we'll get in, uh, into a brief sketch of her life and her generation, but I think we'd like to hear more from Brophy's own voice. So Ellie, if you want to talk your way into it and then take it away. Sure. Um, and you use the word voice there. This is um, a, a transcript of a talk given by Bridget Brophy um, at a day school organised by the Association of Assistant Librarians on the 1st of October 1980. Um, and I think in a way, maybe it demonstrates what you mentioned, Terry, about the way that in terms of the syntax and punctuation of her work, um, maybe to a, a contemporary reader, one does have to be very attentive uh, yeah. that there are long sentences and there are clauses that are elaborate, but very finely tuned in order yeah. to activate the meaning. Um, and it's yeah. interesting to, to read this as a transcript that she, she would have written, um, but see how that is changed or modulated or how that has some um, uh, affinity with, with how it can be expressed vocally. And it's, it's about, um, about fiction in a way, it's about poetry in a way, um, and it's also about how a writer situates oneself between those, those modes. Um, and I hope gestures towards, uh, as I say, this encyclopedic uh, awareness of reading as much as, as writing. Um, and I'll start just here. Um, but great way of starting a sentence. But the literary arts provoke the Puritans in a particular way because they have dramatis personae about whom they present a continuous texture of episodes. The source of the shame people feel when they are caught reading a novel is, I think, that a novel has a strong textural resemblance to those shaming things we've all had, though we may not admit to having had once since the age of six, namely daydreams, whether of the erotic variety or the even more shaming vainglorious kind. <laughs> the formal resemblance to a daydream is shared by novels, plays and poems. However, a poem has to seem more clever than a novel. It has to manipulate repetitive rhythm and perhaps also rhyme. And so it is an element of intellectual puzzle that holds the reader at an admiring distance. A poet, uh, rather, a poem can't even seem as a novel can to flow as effortlessly and self-indulgently as a daydream. With a play, except perhaps when it's on television or a film, at least there are other people present in the audience. But a novel apart from the 19th century habit of family reading aloud, which had less to do with the nature of novels or even families than with the cost of providing artificial light for more than one person to read by in the evenings. A novel excludes sociability and is designed for you to shut yourself up with it alone in your reading head. 
and is thus instantly identifiable by Puritans as a form of solitary vice. In <laughs> fact, reading a novel, or indeed writing one, is an infinitely more complex act than having a daydream, in which you, the author and the audience, are always the hero and get lots of sex or glory or both. The most perfunctory novel needs more intellectual structure than a daydream and has to be more careful about plausibility. And the fantasy comes from a much deeper level of the novelist's mind. Indeed, many novels are less like daydreams than like real dreams, the involuntary kind we have during sleep, in that they present unconscious fantasy fairly naked in an atmosphere of pure surrealism. I'm thinking not only of supposedly esoteric and avant-garde novels of the last few decades, but also of very pop surreal novels, Alice in Wonderland. To some extent, every novel pits the fantasy content against the requirements of the design. And I suppose the very best novels, those of Jane Austen, for instance, are the ones where the most irrepressible invention is matched against the utmost intellectual severity of the structure. And I think the idea of fantasy and daydream and this precision <laughs> of syntax is just so extraordinary to me in, in terms of tension and in terms of humour and in, in terms of truth, really, there, truth telling. The way she used the word severity there right at the end, um, it just all the weight of everything she said just lands on it. And uh, that's the kind of thing about her style that I just love. I mean, it's very Latinate, but um, she she creates these like in in music, the like dotted notes on certain words, uh, an emphasis that is often so beautiful. You can't believe it. Um, Thanks so much, Ellie and Terry. I just want to bring you in here because I feel that we've spoken a lot about Brophy's work and we've opened lots of doors for potential readers. What we haven't done is briefly sort of sketch her life and times. Is there a way of sort of potting the biography of Bridget Brophy in a way that people who want to quickly snapshot her, her generation, her sensibility, her milieu can understand? Terry, over to you. Um, well, the first thing that popped into my head, uh, she did write an autobiographical piece that was one of the things that I found most gripping about her. Uh, and it had to do with uh, her discovery uh, around just after 1980 of um, that she was suffering from uh, multiple sclerosis the illness from which she died. Now, it sounds um, a strange way to begin thinking about her life and times, but it's an extraordinary piece of writing. Um, absolutely, I don't know, unlike anything else I've read, and of course, filled with a certain pathos, not that she is um seeking that particularly but it's there and um it's also about her marriage to michael levy and uh her friendships with people elizabeth jane howard uh she first realizes something isn't right when she uh, is running to catch a cab with Elizabeth Jane Howard and trips on a curb 
uh, but she doesn't remember afterwards what happened. And um, it's really extraordinarily physical and uh, is kind of the, oh, the terrifying side of her interest in the and of sensual experience, um, the life of the body, uh, and the mortality of the body. Um, so it's, you know, when I first read it, I thought, gosh, uh, this is amazing. Um, so that would be my eccentric uh, way of beginning to think about her. Um I also think her essays are the place to start, um, not only because many of them are very short, but you can often focus better on the uh, literary effects that she can create, along with her uh, brilliant uh, polemical effects that she creates. Um, my favorite essay of hers, and I think it's one of the greatest essays in English, is it's really short. It's about uh, Carol Fabricius, the painting of the goldfinch. Um, and uh, it's an extraordinary accessing of emotion and sympathy for animals and through a bird that lived in the 17th century, was painted by Carol Fabricius uh, with a little gold chain around its leg uh, so that it couldn't fly away. And she ends uh, by uh, talking about it as the prisoner uh, of Fabricius and everyone who looks at the painting. So. Um, I think her essays are are a good point. Uh, I just want to give a notice to all of our lovely attendees. We can see your little red dots in the top corner of the screen. Uh, we would like to open very soon indeed to questions and comments. And just to note to the organizers, I too am waiting for that lovely list of questions that I would love to to put to Terry and to Ellie. I just want to throw over some of the themes that Terry brought up uh, to Ellie, because what we know is that uh, Brophy was extraordinarily interested in huge, uh, a great variety of different kinds of arts disciplines from Mozart to Renaissance painting to uh, writing about Germaine Greer. Do you <laughs> think that she's just as significant as, do you think that she's just as significant as a cultural critic as a creative artist herself. Yes, um, and I'd say uh, in part because of the creativity of her criticism, um, I think that uh, the way in which, as as Terry just mentioned, um, a art historical essay uh, becomes a narrative of encounter, um, the way that she writes uh, both in fiction and in her critical work, acknowledges the way in which um, a work of criticism can be ekphrastic in a way. It can be a work of art that riffs on and engages um, painterly effect framing devices. Um, there's this extraordinary 
description of how Ronald Fairbank, um, she uses the phrase, erates his prose by using dots and dashes. I think it's dots, ellipses in particular. Um, this idea of, of a text being something material that could be perforated through punctuation um, that just is a way of handling and thinking through subjects and combining subjects together um, that, as I say, is accessible and formidable and arch but generous. Um, and I think that she is a bit like um, figures and voices such as Marganita Lasky, just for whatever, for, for various reasons, have receded in a public consciousness. Um, and at the time were so present, you know, were, were being used by name as shorthands for a certain uh, intellectual curiosity, uh, for a certain um, uh, expressive and, and radical quality um, and complexity and, and glamour. Um, and it is, it is a, a real loss, I feel, and it, it is so wonderful that um, she is, is being brought back to, to readers um, via the efforts of, of editors and, and her daughter, Kate. Um, it, it really feels like a gift to be able to, to re-encounter um, her work and, and hope that it, it doesn't become lost again. There's a wonderful question here from, uh, uh, from Anonymous, the classic Anonymous uh, <laughs> avidly. Uh, Terry Castle, if I put this one to you and then Ellie, if you want to chip in, uh, if we find an answer to this. I was struck by Brophy using a quote from one of her own nonfiction works as an epigraph for the snowball. Did she use, no, 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 but this is a fantastic question. Did she use fiction to resolve unanswerable questions from her scholarly research? Ah, yes. Well, yeah, it's a lovely question. Um, I mean, you know, the the old uh, chestnut is Donna Anna. Has she, in fact, been seduced by Don Giovanni and um, that uh, opera scholars um, and just regular listeners uh, can can worry over eternally? Um, that's obviously. Um, something that she's at least wanting to kind of press a button to get us thinking about it again. Um, but um, she uses, I mean, there's a kind of intimacy in her use of epigraphs to her novels. And one of the things that I find very interesting is that both with Iris Murdoch and Maureen Duffy, subsequently, she communicated with each of these women through epigraphs uh, in particular. And it is very noticeable if you read Duffy's novels of, say, the 60s in tandem and 70s with Brophy's at the same time. They're both uh, hugely influenced by Keats, um, and uh, they use the same epigraphs at one point. Um, 
before so, before we go down the rabbit hole, I, I have lots of sorry, people were very shy at the beginning, but uh, the questions are now flowing in. Ellie, if you're happy to move on, I have a question from Ray Donaldson. Um, and it's a sort of it's a very useful starter question. So Ray is asking for someone who hasn't read Brophy, where would you suggest they start? I, I feel like Terry slightly answered this with her recommendations yeah. of the essays. But uh, Ellie, if you want to come in on that. I mean, I would say start with, um, first of all, get the essays on your desk uh, so you can quickly pivot to them. Um, but I would say start with maybe with her first novel, um, okay. which was uh, published in 1953. Um, and I won't give away the title of it because I know most of you are on a computer and can Google it immediately. Um, <laughs> And I kind of don't want to give away what the central motif of the novel even is. But I think that it will give a sense of the scope of her fiction, uh, the way in which science and that kind of quasi prophecy that, that fiction writers are able to do in terms of imagining a thought experiment um, of the here and now and and recreating it in the ecosystem of, uh, of, a, of a novel um, and the ambition that she has right off the bat with her fiction. Yeah. Um, it's a strange story. It's a tragic story. It's very funny. Um, and uh, I think I think that will set you up with curiosity and uh, gumption. <laughs> so I'd, I'd recommend her first 1953 novel. Uh, we've had a really wonderful question from another anonymous person, but it's a, a little bit telling about Bridget's own biography. I think maybe Terry, I think you, you might be the expert on this one. Can you talk a bit about Bridget's Irish background and her sense of herself as sort of in between, perhaps not at home in Ireland, which I think she visited, and not quite at home in England either? Yes. Well, I can't say too much about it, um, but I know it was one of her big bonds with Iris Murdoch um, and Maureen Duffy, I think, too. Um, it's interesting, the Irish or Anglo-Irish women writers of this period are a fascinating little group. Um, not, um, it's interesting. I don't remember her making any comments, but I could be wrong. I'm just not, um, uh, completely conversant with this, but I don't remember her commenting on Irish politics of, say, the 1970s, uh, the IRA or uh, the conflicts uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, so I'm not really sure. It's something I need to know more about, and maybe there is someone here who does know more about it. Um, um Ellie, Ellie, let me throw this over to you. Uh, this is all eminently Googleable, but one thing that did did intrigue me looking into this is how Brophy saw herself, because from the outside now, whether we're in this era of privilege checking and all the rest of it, one could, I do think, legitimately say, well, she was part of this Oxford coterie of philosophers and intellectuals, um, very concerned with big questions and so on and so forth. But is that how she saw herself? I think that she didn't value 
that as a useful kind of identity marker necessarily, but more that the work that could be done and that those institutions might offer in terms of access um, to, to scholarship. Um, I think that it's interesting in terms of identity markers, and maybe this is uh, correspondent with or, or cognizant with um, the question about epigraphs and um, the selecting oneself <laughs> as, as the writer that, that would be quoted at the beginning of a book. Um, <laughs> a copy of uh, her novel Flesh that she gave to Iris Murdoch um, she, she tampered with the, um, <laughs> with the title and the cover of it and with her author photograph um, for this, this personal copy that she was giving to Iris Murdoch so that it read rather than Flesh, a novel by um, Bridget Brophy, it read as uh, Flash, a navel by Bridget Bardot. And this playfulness, <laughs> this willingness to um, position oneself artfully, but also kind of cocking a snook at the idea of uh, venerating a material object, I think that can also maybe be transcribed onto how she saw these institutions or how she saw um, attempts to maybe regulate her or pen her, as it were, um, into a, a certain mode or into a certain discourse. I think she was more explosive than that and um, was able to, to use that power that was afforded by that position and by that, by, uh, that identity um, so that she was able to open things up I like this, the monocle and the, sort of, <laughs> it's all very Joe Orton-like too, um, the defaced book, it's, it's great. Uh, Terry, let me bring you in here because we, we we spoke a little bit about Brophy's great span of novels up at the top, and I, I feel like we may have down-talked them a little bit by saying that they were difficult and all the rest of it. Brophy's novels included Hackenfeller's Ape, The King of a Rainy Country, Flesh, The Finishing Touch, and In Transit. Which of her fics would you wholeheartedly recommend now, and why? Oh, gosh. What a question. Um... If we, if we don't just want to push people towards the snowball, um, they right, can find yes, second-hand yes, edition. Yes, yeah, um, I think probably the king of a rainy or king of a rainy country, um, which has been reissued very recently uh, by Coelacanth Press, as you mentioned, uh, under the uh, uh, direction of Phoebe Blatton, who I think is floating around in the ether today, um, listening. And it's a wonderful novel and an early novel. And it has, uh, it begins with something that always activates um, uh, a side of Brophy that I find enormously attractive. And that is the life of adolescent girls and it starts in with a school girls school and uh, uh, a performance of as you like it I think that they're about to um, perform the school girls and of course everybody's cross-dressing and so already Brophy's just appeared with all of her uh, tropes in place uh, and then it goes on and uh, has uh, 
uh, other elements to it. Um, uh, but it's it's a it's it's a strange, quirky novel. I guess when I say something's difficult to me, that's a good thing. Um, so um, you know, she is difficult. Um, you know, you get you can get a lot out of her, even if you don't recognize some of the things she's doing. But but um, you know, she's a snob. And she expects you to know what she's talking about. And, whoa, you have to live up to her. So I think that's good for readers, not bad. Um, but I'd say. We have, an excellent, <laughs> we have an excellent final question that's just come in, which directly speaks to what you're saying. So it's from Jonathan Hawkswell or Hawkswell. I do hope I haven't mispronounced that. Uh, that'll be our closing question for the evening. But... Um, you describe the conversations at the snowball as arch and facetious. I've just read some of Brophy's lit crit in the London Review of Books, and they have a lot of the same two things if you are the target. As a non-target, however, they read as sharp and entertaining to me. Do yeah. you agree? Terry first, then Ellie. Terry. Yes. <laughs> yes, to the above. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's not always like that, too. And then a lot of the essays and her the lives of the uh, rights of animals and so forth, that's where you see something very different. And indeed, uh, in her uh, writing about her illness. Uh, so, yeah. Ellie? Uh, exactly the same, that I think that that kind of the sharp bite of a lemon sherbet, which you kind of you take a step back, but you want more. It's I think that it's very uh, it's smart to think of it in terms of targets and pursuit and and hunting down, um, yeah. but also of of the sport of that. How awful to use a hunting metaphor, someone that was so important <laughs> in battle rights. Um, but the, the the notion of of thrilling when one reads Brophy, I think, is a constant for me. Um, and I am very happy to and thrilled to know that there's so much more out there that I will soon get my hands on. That is an absolutely wonderful closer and as a free gift to any of the people who we know are sticking along with us as we close out this session. We have, in fact, posted some links to Bridget Brophy's work for the LRB in the chat function. So only when we finish talking, may you click the links to uh, that archive <laughs> of Bridget Brophy's, of Brophy's contribution. Uh, we're at 7.59, so in the minute I have left, it's time for me to say goodbye and slowly, gently close this event. But first, I want to let you know that Bridget Brophy's novel, The Snowball, is available from the online London Review bookshop. Look out for the link that's also posted in the chat and click onto it and read this wonderful and scintillating novel. Thank you to Faber for supporting this event and above all to everyone at the London Review of Books, both the publication and the wonderful and much missed bookshop, which is still available yeah. and open and trading online for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you to Sam Kinchin-Smith, to Claire Williams, to Anthony Wilkes, and above all, thank you to our panelists, Terry Castle and Ellie Williams. Thanks to Bridget Brophy for providing the inspiration for this talk. Thanks, everyone who attended, and have a fantastic evening. Thanks for listening. 
To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.